find it yet, that'll be a challenge for you. If you don't understand that a wall of faith is an event, it's that situation where you don't get the privileges generally of uh, certain obvious resources and benefits in your life uh, when you're going through normal difficulties. I've talked about the difference between a trial and what our first point describes as the fog of a war. And that is what we want to drill into a little bit more. When you're in the fog of war, certain resources are not available to you as you might perceive them. And so a fog of war is a really dangerous place to be. And I think that's what Pilgrim uh, was learning here about how God keeps us even in the midst of the fog of war. But we want to be able to recognize it, understand it for what it is. How come the people of God enter into fogs of war? How is it that they find themselves there? And then how does Christ intervene? Or in another salient point is how is it that the enemy actually works when you and I are moving into fogs of war as well? We talked a lot about this, so I'm really reiterating a lot of stuff we already covered, but we'll pick up a little bit of that tonight. James chapter 3, we're going to be looking at verses 13 through 16, and then we're going to pick up under our second point, move forward. Let me open us in a word of prayer. Amen. Amen. I'm going to pick up at James 3 and just read verses 13 through 16 briefly, and then we're going to pick up at our um, conversation as our outline would uh, frame it. And what we want to do is here James explains uh, a setting in which the believer can be found uh, and humanity in general, particularly he's identifying what happens when the enemy is able to penetrate into our camp and turn things upside down, which he does. And sometimes we help him. So we read over in verse 13, these words, who is a wise man? endued or endowed or gifted with knowledge. This would be wise men or women. Who is a wise man endued with knowledge? Let him show or demonstrate out of a good life, not a good conversation that is dialogue, but out of a good life. Let him show out of a good life his works with meekness of wisdom. So what James is saying as he's admonishing the people of God, he's come up out of chapter two, which deals with Faith without works is what? He argues that the believer must have a faith that moves them out in a kind of life that demonstrates the grace of God. The reason why the people of God are saved and remain is to be a witness of God's grace and goodness in their life. This this ought to be something that we are settled with. You, You live for God on purpose. You don't live for God on accident. Living for God is not like... uh sort of kind of an extra deed. You don't come to God by faith and then, you know, do whatever you want to do. You and I are asking for a calamity if we think that when he saves us, we're called to do whatever we want to do. You want to talk about some people living in the fog? Let people think that they're called to do whatever they want to do. The fog is designed to set in in order to slow you down. In some cases, stop you in your tracks until you realize that you are called to a walk of faith, which is also a walk of purpose, is it not? So what we have here in James 3.13 is James having already resolved the argument 
about what it means to walk with God, because God always has purposes for our lives. Like never does he not have purposes for our life. He always does. You might have to ask him, what is that? Or what are those? Because they could be many. It doesn't have to be one thing. It could, it could be many things. And you would know that. I'm, 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 being, I'm doing a parenthetical right now, but that's because, you know, we often need stirring up on Friday night. There are many areas in your life where you're called to be responsible. There are many um, callings in your life for which in your calling you are to be responsible. All you have to do is ask yourself who you are <clears throat> and then ask yourself, what, what, what am I? What, what am I called to do? What am I called to be? And you'll discover in those two questions really how you are to walk with God. And, and in general, all of us are called to fundamentally the same things, what it means to be a man of God and what it means to be a woman of God. Does that make some sense? Right. So when a Christian says, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. Well, what are you? That's the first thing. Are you a man? Well, there's a whole list of things for men to do. Are you a woman? There's a whole list of things for a woman to do. Are you a mother? There's a ton of things for a mother to do and on and on and on. All of these are offices and very seldom is a believer called to just kind of be one thing. And, and also there are many things that you're called to be for a season. And then after that, that particular assignment is over with. And then you move into another assignment or it might be this. I'm giving you some clues just because it's Friday and I just feel sorry for you. It, 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 <laughs> Or it might be this, you, you may have had seven or eight assignments in your life and you have negotiated most of them and now those assignments are, are uh, uh, accomplished and you're back to one or two assignments. Did that make some sense? Right, and then, you know, because older people would know that. All of my basic temporal assignments of raising kids and taking care of this and taking care of that are done. Only have one or two fundamental assignments to operate out of. And a lot of times uh, not recognizing that can put you where? In the fog. It can put you in the fog when you don't recognize that the season has changed and God has, uh, he has minimized your responsibilities. He's giving you a much smaller tenure. And sometimes out of our pride or, um, you know, just lack of submission to the Lord, we'll think that, you know, God is putting us on the sideline when that's not the case at all. It just may be that you're at a place where he has simplified your life. But even in the simplicity of your life, there's a purpose in it. And so this is what James is getting at with the man or the woman who is wise among you endowed, gifted with knowledge. And that would be the case with a wise man or woman. Right. There's no such thing as a wise, ignorant person. So among you, let him show out of a good conversation or a, a, a good life. His works with meekness of wisdom. So yeah, we would be expecting wiser people, mature people, older not, I'm not putting a real chronology on that. Like older could be 20 compared to 14 or 30 compared to 21 or 40 compared to 25. You guys understand what I'm saying. Um, we are all then responsible to be a model for the downline, if you will, 
um, who then is wise among you? Let him show out of his out of a good life, his works with meekness of wisdom. Uh, right choice making is the way I've said it before, haven't I? Right choice making. And that requires submission to God. Meekness is submission to God. Wisdom is God answering your quest to help you do and be what God is calling you to be. But if you have bitter envy and strife in your heart, glory not and lie not against the truth. Now you see what James is doing here. He's getting right back to uh, fundamental challenges that go on in the parlor. What is the parlor? The heart. I know y'all not here yet. Your bodies are, but you're not. The parlor is the heart. And remember, the parlor is where we do public demonstrations of our general overall character and tenor to the world. And what James is saying now, if you got all this junk going on in there, we got issues, don't we? Because that stuff is going to show up. That's going to show up. But if you have bitter envy and stripe in your hearts, do not glory and lie not against the truth. Now, if you really don't know what that means, what he's saying is you have no reason to rejoice in your bitterness, in your anger, in your vitriol, as if that's something that God approves of. He doesn't. But you know, a lot of times people will walk in that. I've shared this with you before. People will walk in their struggle more they more than they will in the grace of God. They'll walk in their trials and troubles and glory in them more than they will glory in the Savior that's keeping them, right? At that point, you are now um, codependent with your own dysfunctionality. You are allowing your dysfunctionality to be your identity. That makes sense. I know it does. Um, and so this is why what James would say is that would be a lie. And it would be a lie because the believer is not called to that. Again, Ephesians 4 would, Ephesians 3 would tell you and I, that's Ephesians 4, it would tell you and I that we are to no longer walk as we did in our former life. Because in our former walk, we were lying. Right. Because God created us for his glory. He created us to walk with him. He created us to be people of truth. Right. And so when we're not walking in the truth, we are what? Lying. And this is what James is saying here. I get it. I get it, James. Look at verse 15 and 16. This is the long route to the ultimate um, meditation. This wisdom does not descend from above. What wisdom? What he was talking about earlier. Um, the carnal life that leads to chaos, that leads to uh, uh, negative and, and uh, destructive characteristics. That's not godly wisdom. This wisdom descends not from above. Strife and conflict and turmoil and war descends not from above, but it's earthly, sensual, and what? All right. Now, where's James coming from? James is coming from the Genesis narrative where everything was peaceful in the garden and Adam and Eve had a great job and they had a great boss. And then some dude came along and said, your boss owes you more money. Now we're at, at, at strife with God. This should be easy to translate. Is it, raise your hand if it is easy to translate. It's easy to translate. All the devil did was came in and created contention and strife and argumentation against a good boss, didn't he? And, and this is what, what James is saying. We know because James, James chapter four is going to lay out for us in verses one through three. From whence come wars? Do they not come of your own lust? Do they not come from the internal discontent that is latent in our fallen nature that has us complaining about God's goodness in our life? I mean, your head is really on backwards when you complain about God's goodness. Isn't that right? 
Right. So here's what he says. Be careful because this is earthly, central and devilish. This here is what we would call a negative Trinity paradigm. Right. Because God is holy, holy, holy. But the enemy is earthly, sensual and devilish. And God is heavenly oriented. Right. And so people of God, we dwell in heavenly places. We don't dwell as having our identity rooted in earthly things. But the enemy does, and we got to fight against that because of our fallen carnal nature. Verse 16, look at verse 16. For where envying and strife is, there is what? Confusion and every evil work. Now look at verse 16. You see that? That's called the fog. That's the fog. You see it? That's the fog. Because when things are operating in order, coherently, in a structure set up the way that God has it, there's no fog. We're walking in clarity. We're walking in the meridian noonday sun. The sun is shining. No clouds in the air. No, no dark, dark, foreboding, thunderous clouds that's going to disrupt our, our joyful daytime. That's the metaphor. It's important for us to capture it because this here is what Peter went through. And this is what Job went through. Remember, those are our two case studies, right? I'm getting ready to get back to them, but I'm going to call other people up. And then hopefully in about an hour from now, we'll be able to talk a little bit about um, this. Here's the question that you and I are really working through is why does God allow that to happen from time to time? Again, the wall of faith is designed for you and I to understand when things get to a place where we can not See, we have to know. Did you get that? Right. I wish uh, uh, Angelo drives a long distance. He's a UPS driver like a couple of cats. And he sent over on my phone. Um, He sent over on my phone. Angelo, if you're listening to me, send that picture uh, email and uh, maybe uh, Akilah will pick it up on my on my email. He sent me a picture of him driving down the highway in the big UPS trucks because they dump stuff off. And he was showing me how out in front of his window, it was clear as day. And so he got long distance view. Things are very clear. And then the next shot, the fog started setting in. And then the next shot, the fog is right up on the window. And if we saw all three of those, you would kind of get vividly what I'm talking about. When you're in the fog of war, you have no visual distance in front of you, right? And, and that requires radical adjustment immediately. Radical adjustment. The first thing you have to do is to know you're in the fog. That's what we were dealing with, right? Look at our first point, walking through it, the fog of war for the believers. First thing you do is you recognize when you are in it. You recognize when you're in it. We saw this in our Wednesday night class. Job said when he found himself beginning to recognize the fog, he started looking for God, didn't he? Job 23, 8 and 9. And what did he say? I couldn't find him. Is that what Job said? I couldn't find him. I looked for him on the left hand. I looked for him on the right hand. Look, I go forward and I go backwards and I cannot perceive him. Notice what he says. I don't perceive God. Now, what is he looking for? He's not looking for a physical body. God's not operating in a physical body. He's looking for clues of God's nearness like we all would. We're looking for evidences of God's approbation that we're okay, even if we are in a situation that's not so good. 
We're looking. Remember, I taught you this several months ago. David said in the Psalms, Lord, show me a token for good that I may know that you are with me and my enemies might know that you're with me. You guys remember that. And so here David is saying that because, you know, David was in the fog a lot. When you're in the fog, just show me a token. And can you imagine driving in the fog? I want that analogy to ride with you. And you have driven in the fog, have you not? All right, so I want you to think about something about driving in the fog because sometimes you don't have the benefit of pulling over and stopping. There might be all kinds of reasons why you can't. You might, should, but there are all kinds of reasons that you can't. And let's assume you don't have the privilege of just pulling over and stopping. Well, now you got to engage in several sort of strategies to navigate a fog scenario, don't you? All you got to do is think them through. What do I do to navigate a fog scenario where I've got to keep going in that fog? What are going to be some immediately <clears throat> rational, logical, and safe things to do? The first of which is what? Slow down. Right. And then on a psychological level, what you're doing to slow down is really reining in all unnecessary cluttering and and distracting thoughts, aren't you? Now what you're doing is you're starting to now what is called rationalize. I told you rationalization is what every creature does to survive. Rationalization is when you have 50 things in front of you and you have to narrow them down to three. Everybody does that. Every animal does that. Every creature determines which route to go. You say, you think about the, um, the um, you have the predator chasing the victim, right? Or uh, the vulnerable animal. That vulnerable animal has to determine which way to go. He has to make all kind of sharp, you know, turns and dips. He's looking for exit strategies, walls to hide behind, places to uh, protect him from the predator. And the same thing for the believer in the spiritual dimension. Am I making some sense? Because you feel a sense of foreboding danger and your limbic system is kicking in and you need to do something, don't you? All right. So uh, we were talking about slow down, right? That you try to rein in your thoughts because your limbic system will have you operating at high levels of irrational alert because this is all about survival, right? So when you slow down, one of the other fundamental things you do when you're a child of God is what? Pray. Right? So now think about this. I'm only going to do a few and then get back into our outline. So I'm giving you a bunch of things to talk about when we get to q and I'm helping you out, but you should already know this. Um, Sometimes when you and I are in hyper alert mode and hyper, this is called crisis. So fog is about crisis, is it not? Fog is definitely about crisis. When you and I are in crisis mode, we can be stupid. You know that. Or we can be sound in our faith. We can be stupid or sound just being... um, Uh, alliterating there. We can be stupid or we can be sound. To be sound is to make decisions based upon who we are and whose we are. But that means you got to hurry up. You got to hurry up and rein in those emotions. You got to hurry up and get them under control. That is a rationalization mechanism. You know that. Then you have to start figuring out what you got to do because time is of the essence. And the first thing that you and I would be doing as a child of God is what? Calling upon God. Right. Calling upon God. So that's what Job is trying to do. 
on the left hand where he doth work, but I cannot behold him. He hides himself on the right hand that I cannot what? Job is fit to be tied because he's in a major fog and he's looking for God and he can't find him. So what does Job need to do? Stop. He's already praying because he's looking. See, the, so the metaphor is about searching for God. He is calling on God. How many chapters are we in there? 23. That brother been calling on God for a minute. Do you know the kind of prayers he's been praying? Some serious stuff, right? And God's not answering him. So, and, and there are times when we're there, are we not? Right. And it can easily be called the fog. Easily be called the fog. Okay, I'll give you one more, then I'll step in. When you are in fogs, and you're not always in the fog. By the way, you're not always in the fog. Right? Right. And when you're not in the fog, you need to give God thanks for that too. You better stop acting like, you know, the normal is, you know, like routine, like God owes me that. He don't owe you that. Right. When you get these long periods of blessing, where the roof is over your head and it's not leaking or falling in, or you're able to pay your bills or you're able to work, and you have a whole bunch of other resources, sources, some of which I'm not going to talk to you about until we get deeper into the lesson. <clears throat> you count your blessing because part of the psychological fog is when you and I are in the takeaway. <clears throat> I've talked to you about that before. The takeaway mode is when things that you and I commonly have are threatened. They're removed, right? That's the takeaway mode. To whom he that hath more shall be given, but to him that hath not even that which he has shall be what? Taken away, right? What you don't use, you what? That's a basic colloquialism. And the point is, is that uh, often we get in trouble when we take things for this is true. Right. So so when you and I got to learn a little bit of something about this, particularly with Job uh, and, and, and Peter as well, Peter as well, because Peter really seriously got in trouble. Under point number two, sub points A and B, I said behind the wall of faith is a what? Distraction what? Event. Behind the wall of faith is a distraction event. So remember what I said. I'm going to repeat it because people online really enjoy me repeating stuff. <laughs> and, and I get it. That's the way scripture is. That's why very seldom is one verse that's really important not qu quoted again somewhere in your Bible. Right. This is what Paul said in Philippians three. For me to say the same things to you is not a burdensome to me. It's your salvation. So it's really important that you and I understand that um, the wall of faith is a situation where God is going to call on you and me to do something that we would not have to do normally because the wall is not there. Resources are about us. There's a kind of normalcy there, right? A normalcy there that allows us to enjoy the freedom of God's grace in our life. It's just when that normalcy is disrupted and God is now saying there are things that used to be available to help you maintain your equilibrium, they're not there now. That's what that's about. And it can be the consequence of a distraction event, as I taught you guys in Luke 22, 19 through 24. Remember what Jesus had told the disciples? We talked about this Wednesday. This was right before Jesus said, Peter, you're in trouble. Remember that? 
You guys remember what I told you? I told you that they were at the table and Jesus said, one of y'all going to betray me. And for about five seconds, they said, it's him. They started pointing the finger at each other. No, they were saying, is it I? They were really struggling with it. And then somebody flipped the script and started another conversation. Do y'all remember that? Who's going to be the greatest? Who's going to sit on the right? Who's going to sit on the left? If that's not Uberus, if that's not carnality, if that's not stupid, your master is about to go into the fog himself. And he's asking you to go with him and you trying to figure out what you're going to get out of this thing when it's over with. But now I'm looking out at about 40 people. Y'all don't do that. None of y'all ever do that. And, and so look at, so you know they're tempted. The moment that their thoughts are not fixed on the assignment right in front of them, they are tempted, aren't they? Right, because the Lord had told them earlier, hey, we're getting ready to get into some hot stuff here. It's getting ready to happen. I need you to focus. We, we're getting ready to go into a crisis, fellas. And I don't need you to be what? <laughs> don't need you to be stupid. They were, <laughs> And we can be too. So that's what sub point A is. And so it's important for you and I to know that a situation can be clear one moment and then the fog sets in. If it does, look for a distraction event that could have disrupted your sense of spiritual equilibrium. You got that? Because that distraction event could be a phone call. It could be a text. It could be something that occurs and then all of a sudden you are shifted in a way that you are now dislodged from your grounding. You don't know it, but now you are about to enter into the portal of confusion, psychologically, emotionally, practically. You know what I'm saying is true. Sub point B, and therefore the loss of what? Spiritual direction, the loss of spiritual direction. You and I saw this Job chapter three, verse one, Job three, one in Job chapter one, verse 21. Job was sterling in his saying, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Remember that by the time we get to chapter three, look what he says in verse one. Job opened his mouth and he cursed his day. Right. So how do you go from the Lord gives and the Lord takes away to cursed be the day I was born? entering into a fog, a major change of focus, a major change of emotional well-being, a major change of confidence in God. That's gone. It has to be for him to be cursing the day. The fog is right up on Job's face, is it not? It's right up on his face. And he's saying, I have nothing to live for. Have you been there? I hope not. But if we have been under enough pressure, we know a little bit about the temptation of wanting to exit this world. You know what I mean? It's not a, it's not a good thing, but sometimes you'll get there. And if you're there, the fog has set in. There's not, nothing in front of you saying, trudge ahead. Nothing in front of you saying, keep going. And that's what's going on with our brother, brother Job. And of course, from chapter three to 23, it's all bad uh, because he enters into a kind of dialogue with his friends that are not helpful, as you and I talked about. The last thing you want when you're in the fog is for somebody to come along acting like they're not in the fog, but they're just as much as in the fog as you are. Did you hear what I just stated? 
The last thing you want is somebody who is in the fog just like you. Okay, that like, you know, no, no, no. Uh, and so that's what we see with the Job account. First principles in that outline is, is, uh, is pray. The first thing you and I do, Psalm 50, verse 14 and 15, Jesus, in the time of trouble, call upon me. Right, you and I have learned that there can be, whenever a, a fog sets in, it can create a lag time between the event and the proper response to it. Whenever a fog, uh, crisis do that. I was just listening to an excellent uh, presentation today around how manufactured crisis that are done by the people that like to manipulate masses, crises are designed to create such gap between the event and our proper response as to turn you around and get you completely off center. So you guys remember the game we used to play <clears throat> when we were little, and this one is going to work as a great analogy. You know, I, I, you, human beings since the fall have always had this peculiar pecant. Uh, it's kind of a bent to kind of get high. Right. We, 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 we want to space out. We don't like normalcy. Do you, you watch little kids and little kids will play games to disorient their mind. Am I making sense? You remember what they used to do? They just. That's that's a child. You got that? Because 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 normalcy is boring to them. And, and this is why God would say to you and me. Be no longer children tossed to and fro. Ephesians 4.14. And some of us are mischievous children in the sense that we don't we don't do well in normal scenarios. I told you a lot of us are drama kings and queens. We love drama. That's exactly the opposite of of uh, of James 3.13. Who's wise among you? Let him show out of a good conversation, you know, his works with meekness and humility. And that would mean that person is going to have a um, reputation of being stable. They're going to make right choices fundamentally. Sometimes we'll get in trouble. We're human. But fundamentally, if you meet somebody that's making basically good choices where their life is stable, their home is stable, their, their reputation is stable, their relationships are stable, that person has gained some wisdom, have they not? Right. They may be boring to you. Okay, because very exciting people are often extremely unstable. Now I'll leave that with you. I just want you to get get the point here around um, the impulse in us as childish uh, individuals of wanting to kind of lose our equilibrium and go through a kind of roller coaster ride because it's exciting to us. It's exciting to us. But it's 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 not the thing that you and I should be living for. Right. And so when the enemy um, and, and you, you and I can be a contributing factor to that brings us into a fog state, we are often misdirected and we don't know which way to go. Nothing like being lost is so emotionally challenging, is it not? Like the moment that you feel lost, major challenges there. Would you agree? All right, so because I'm, I'm helping you kind of understand the wall of faith is there to facilitate all of those kinds of events. 
because sometimes we have to get in those situations where we have a loss of the normalcy and the the, the, again, the mechanisms or the resources or the tools of being able to do everyday life because there are going to be times where you and I will have to learn how to trust God in the abnormal state. Okay? I'm drilling, drilling down into it. You're going to have to learn how to do, trust God in the abnormal state. So a loss of spiritual direction will put you in that. And that will also penetrate into your own a uh, former state of reasonability, capacity to make right choices. Eventually you lose that. And after a while, you can actually become uh, disconfident in your own self. You can be in the fog so um, deeply that you lose confidence in yourself. Am I making some sense? Right. <clears throat> and if you lose confidence in yourself, you're, you're only one step away from losing confidence in God. The correlation between you and God is so tight The correlation between your confidence coextensive to God's presence is super tight. Remember, I told you what confidence is. You probably forgot. This is a great night to get it back. Confideo is a Latin term that means to be close to God. Right. Con means with. With. Sally Con, Joseph. Joseph, right? Con means with. Fideo is Fidelity. Fideo. Deo is God. Fidelity means with God. Confidence means to have a sense that you're with God. That's what confidence means. Confidence is what emerges from you when you are with God. Say amen if that makes sense. Right. And this is not even about a a conscious awareness it's just the result of being near God. <clears throat> right. <clears throat> and this would be true for all creatures uh, uh, on a performative level, on a performative level where God allows the stability of your life and the natural gifts to emerge where you do things and you are competent, you are proficient, you are consistent. That's confidential. We try to teach our kids that, do we not? Haven't we spent many, many years helping our kids believe that God is with them, that God will see them through? I mean, you're pagan if you simply say, baby, you can do whatever you want to do. Baby, you know, the the world is yours, baby. Baby, you can fly if you want to. No, you can't. I'm sorry, you can't fly. You know, but but if you are a, a, a believing person where God is the grounds upon which you stand, if you live, move and have your being in him, this is what we would tell our kids. God made you for this. God is with you. You can do this. This is how they overcome the obstacles in their life. Obstacles you can't remove from them. You cannot take these obstacles from your kids. So since you can't, you better have a better offer for them. And that is God will be with you. Am I making some sense? Right. It's so important to know that. And, and he often is when you see your kids come through, when they make it over something, when they when they're operating at the highest level of optimism. That is confidential. That's God working in people. This is not even redemptive. It's just the way God works with human beings. And this is why human beings are said to be the glory of God. I'm talking saved and unsaved. Y'all with me? Do you understand what I'm getting at? This is why we can rejoice in unbelievers in certain feats they accomplish. We know that's God. 
We sit there and give God credit for, for what he did through them. And they're not even giving him credit. We don't care. Lord, look at what you did through that unbeliever. Look at how you worked through that pagan. You see what I'm getting at? It's extremely important. And then also when we see them fall and stumble and make mistakes, we feel bad for them, don't we? Because we know that they have now been separated from the confidel. That makes sense. Now, I'm a great sports lover and because I, and I, I know how sports can discipline you when your mind is right and make you achieve certain goals in the area of, of athletics, right? Discipline, focus, tenacity, commitment, right? Progress, excellence. And then when you see somebody who is really constantly competent, stumble. You go, oh, don't you? And immediately you're wondering what went wrong. And you and I are thinking through a whole lot of factors. How about them being distracted? How about right before they came out to, practice, to do that event, they, had, they heard some bad news. How about before they went to do that event, an adversary, someone that didn't like them, that hated on them, spit something stupid into their ear. That's how enemies work. You see what I'm getting at? All right. All kind of reasons. And, and, and we can talk about that. I need to keep moving because I want to get through our points. And so under point number three, we hurried up and picked up to the idea that their faith. So you see the two first sub points is the fog, the failure, their what? Right. So it's to their faith, the fog, the failure and their faith, because their faith is what is in view. I told you this on Wednesday in this particular uh, frame. Guess what? There's no person there. So what Pilgrim is seeing is not a person, but an event. There's no personal believer there. There's a wall there. Now, what's in that frame is quite interesting and worthy of us learning some things because what's in that frame is not in any other frame as I see it. And that is, in this frame, you see the persons of the devil and the persons of Christ. You don't see that with the first frame, second frame, third frame. Y'all got that? You're not going to see it even with the Beulah Lamb frame. We're going to be dealing with that next. And I love that, that John Bunyan goes into the glory of the kingdom next because the last two are very difficult. And those, those last two are back at persons again, are they not? But you don't see the person of the devil in those frames. You don't see even the person of Jesus. But it doesn't mean that they're not there. That's not the focus. Christ is present, isn't he? Right. And the enemy is always roaming about, is he not? So what Bunyan wants you and I to be able to do is see things that are there and see things that are what? That's how you understand the mystery. That's how you understand the mystery, <clears throat> if that can help. So one of the things that will get you into trouble is painfully bad advice designed to do what? I, you, you and I know, because it was back in Matthew 16. So Jesus tells Peter here in Luke 22, Peter, you're in trouble. And I'm going to explain to you why. And Peter would have never known, would he? Because the negotiation was in heaven, wasn't it? Peter could have never known that there was someone that was given permission to pour dump loads of water on his fire. He would have never known. So not only would he have not been able to detect what was happening, he wouldn't have understood the grounds for it. This is what makes the book of Job so powerful. God never 
tells Job why he's going through what he's going through. Job has to ride this out, remembering what God said. All right. And so here it is with Peter. Um, you know, you remember what he said in Matthew 16 after Jesus had said, you know, Peter, flesh and blood has not revealed these things to you, but my father, which is in heaven. He's talking about the kingdom of God being established upon the rock, which is Christ crucified. And then Peter, uh, uh, Jesus tells Peter and the rest, the son of man goeth as it is written. He's going to be abused. He's going to be mocked. He's going to be ridiculed and he's going to be crucified, put to death. And Peter said, not so, Lord, not so. We're not going to let that happen to you. You guys remember that? Peter was used to give painfully bad advice that was designed to tempt your master. Did you guys get that? So let it sit in. Let it sit in. Peter got turned backwards because he had no understanding of the straight and narrow way leading to the cross. That it was no option that for Peter to be saved, Christ would have to go through this. The notion that Peter had a better plan was actually demonic. Because what he was saying was, I am not going to let you fulfill the will of your father. So I'm trying to help you get. So I'm trying to help you get here. And it, and it was there that Jesus said, Satan, get thee behind me. Because you don't savor the things of God, but the things of men. Jesus knew right then and there, Satan was already getting in Peter's head. He was operating through Peter's pride. And Peter's pride framed his understanding to not be able to rationalize the humility and purpose of the master. And he thought his job was to rescue Jesus from an erroneous objective. And that is the arrogance of works religion. Okay, that's really important to know. If Christ doesn't die, we all perish. Uh, and so Jesus knew Peter was already in trouble, wasn't he? See, Peter was holding himself to be more than he really was. And that will always be a challenge for us until humility becomes a very common friend in our life. Did that make some sense? Right. If humility becomes a common friend in your life, you won't stay in the fog long. I'm going to say another thing about that, too, just to add. If humility becomes a common friend in your life, are you ready? You can negotiate this, the fog better than most people. When humility becomes a common friend, someone you hang out with, because humility is going to um, ground you. Humility grounds you. Humility overcomes the pseudo narrative, the false narrative that you're something that you're not. And every day we're battling that with words and without words. Whether you know it or not, you are. Think about all of the micro events that occur in your life where you and I have opinions about people and things. Just, I'm just talking about an opinion. And in that small window of an event, you make an assessment. And about five seconds later, you get this eerie sense, if the Lord loves you, that that was stupid. 
And what I mean by that is you have no grounds to have made that kind of judgment. It was not only provable, your position, but it wasn't even necessary for you to do it. And you made that kind of assessment all by yourself between you and God and the devil and whatever. And that person doesn't know because that was like that was a micro event in your mind. And it, and, it, and it expostulated because of some fundamental weakness in your character. Agree, agree with me. Right, because a lot of times the event will rise up and we will be defending ourselves. We'll be protecting ourselves against a rebuke or against the vulnerability of, and here's the other one, this is why you need humility to hang out with you. And humility is what Pilgrim's gonna meet on the road. When we get down the road, he's gonna meet humility too. He's going to have some really good friends with him, okay? He got adversaries, but he's going to have some good friends with him too. Humility continually checks you whenever you're not what you're supposed to be. Humility will continually check you whenever you're not what you're supposed to be because humility's job (laughs) is to keep you from making more of a fool of yourself than you would if humility didn't hang out with you. Does that make some sense? Right. And, and, and you know you're becoming comfortable with humility when you accept all of the phases of rebuke that come from the Lord. They are first correction of your stupid notion and then a gradual release from all of the emotional and psychological conniptions you go through when you're trying to save yourself from a mistake you made. Did that make some sense? Of course it did. And you know you just got to go through the humility of being released from your stupid position. Right? And notice when it's happening, you know that it's happening because humility has been a friend with you since you were a child. You know that. Do you guys know how many, you can write a book all by yourself about all the events you went through growing up where you just blew it, right? And you're still here and you're still God's child and you still have a purpose in life and all that's designed to shape you. What is definitely not designed for you to do is write a book on how to be proud about your stupid mistakes. You see what I'm getting at here? Right. And so when you meet people who walk comfortably with humility, you know what they say real quickly? Oh, I was wrong. Oh, man, I was wrong about that. There was no reason for me to do that. See what I'm getting at? Immediately, they now accelerate the process of the fog dissipating and then being able to get back down the road. All right. So, um, Subpoint B, probing arguments of the what? Self-righteous. This was Job's three friends. <laughs> if you just want a, 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 a speed lesson in how to keep your mouth shut when people you love are hurting, read Job chapter 3 all the way through Job 39 and say, Lord, help me not be like this. Now, one little caveat about the counsel of Job's friends. One little caveat. It is a lot of what they said was true. A lot of what they said was true. You might be able to dig it up in the archives. It was a series I did many years ago at the old church called Job or Jesus, because Job is a type of Jesus. So you're going to learn a lot of redemptive lessons if you go through that study. Okay, Job is suffering for something he didn't do. 
That's what Jesus is going through. Job is suffering at the uh, misbehavior of his wife. Her counsel was bad. Jesus went through that. We're his wife, right? Job is suffering at the wickedness of his brethren. Didn't Jesus go through that? Weren't the Jews his brethren? Didn't they give him bad counsel and wicked advice? Right. So you and I ought to understand Job or Jesus. Job is going to always point to Jesus and you get the lesson from it. Okay, which side am I on? Am I on the side of Job or his three friends in any given situation where I might be by opportunity given to be in the space with a brother or sister or a family member and they're hurting and now I'm thinking I'm Dr. Phil or whoever name you want to put on it and thinking you can solve somebody's problem. And then in addition to that, try to solve their problem with Bible verses. Am I making some sense? Right. You want to you want to create fog in the room? Just bloviate Bible verses that in and of themselves are valid, but they mean nothing in the immediate context. They are not helpful logically. They're not helpful emotionally. They're not helpful circumstantially. In other words, they're brought out of context to simply put you in a position of power over against your loved one being in a position of vulnerability. See what I'm getting at? All right. So this is what Job had to go through with his uh, three brothers. I call them blind what? Blind friends, right. Blind. Now, Job said he was already acknowledging he's blind. Remember, the firewall is telling us we're blind because we're dealing with a mystery, aren't we? I, I don't know. I don't know what's going on. Then your three boys come. Let me tell you what's going on. You listen for 10 minutes. You go, wait a minute. Y'all don't know either. Right. And you're just making it worse. You're making it worse. So this is what we're dealing with here. Job is in the fog here of grievance. You'll find him several times grieving, grieving. He's lost everything. Wife, family, not wife, kids, job, business and health. Right. And so I don't know if that's the worst. I really don't. But I I know strategically it's a, a near affliction and crisis that can be painful. I don't know if it's the worst. I really don't. I, I don't know if I would agree that my own personal pain would be greater than the pain of my child. Am I making some sense? I'm not rebuking you at all, sis. I'm, you know, I've been healthy all my life for the most part. I, I was a sickly young man for a lot of reasons. Now that I'm learning more about the diabolical medical industry. I know that that wasn't normal. But uh, back to the lesson at hand. Um, When I think about my kids and my grandkids, the level of tenderness is exponential and I don't want them suffering. Does that make some sense? Right. And so I'd rather suffer than them. Also, what I do know at my age, and you should know it at your age, Suffering in the physical sense has a limit. Suffering in the physical sense has a limit. Your physical suffering does not max out to some kind of uber excruciating uh, intolerable level because the way your body is made is made to make it hit a limit. Right. You know that, you know, that endorphins kick in, you know, that all kinds of chemicals kick in, even when you're right up against the brink of death. Did you all understand what I just said? 
uh, um, hormones, your, um, it's another word, it'll come in a second, that kicks in as well. God allows these things to kick in so that you can manage your pain. But the pain that you would have to deal with psychologically with a loved one going through something would be far greater. You would want to be ready to take your life for them. You see what I'm getting at? And so fogs of war are strategic. I'm kind of getting into some of the strategies of the enemy that can bring you into that. But point number three, so I can get to my fourth point, we can have some conversation. Their faith was under furious assault because the goal of the devil is always to steal, kill, and destroy, and ultimately destroy your faith. Now, this is really important because as Jesus said, don't fear him that can kill the what? body, the body, but, but, but fear him that can kill both body and soul and hell. And what he was saying was the best the enemy can do when your head is right is take your physical life. And then if you read Job carefully, he has to be given permission. So if you and I are clear on who we are in God, if enough confidence is there for us to retain the promises of God, You and I can know that the promises of God are nothing will separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, whether it be, you know, life or death or principalities or powers or angels or things to come. None of that will separate us. But the goal of the enemy is to get you to be dislodged from the principle of faith that lays hold to that promise. Right? That's the whole, this is the whole lesson here. The whole lesson here is how the goal of the enemy is to destroy your ability to believe God. That's his whole goal here. Good. Thankful that you guys are, are capturing that. So under point number three, sub point A, painfully bad advice. <clears throat> sub point B, probing arguments of the self-righteous. Point number four, the, their faith was wondrously maintained by who? Right. And I use that word wondrously in the old Saxon language, which is equivalent to the idea of transcendent. Um, When we talk about God, we use the word wonderful. That's an old English term, wonderful. And wonderful, wonder, wonder, wonder is the idea of not being able to sufficiently nail down a description of his character. When God is wonderful to me, wonderful to us, it means he is bigger than we can describe. He is grander than we can articulate. Right. So this is why Jesus is called wonderful. And this is why his name was expressed as wonderful in the angel when uh, when um, Gideon was asking, what is your name? And he said, why are you asking since it is wonderful? It's the same term that was used with Samson's parents when his parents were asking, what is your name? And that was Jesus, the visible Yahweh. And he said, it's wonderful. That means it's a mystery. But it's not so much of a mystery that you and I don't derive profound aesthetic benefit from it. So a mystery are things we don't know, things that are wonderful and transcendent and are majestic and are excellent. They're just bigger than we can explain. But they feel good and they resonate powerfully at the level of reception, right? We accept wonder. That's the other element of a child. I get that. Children love wonder. 
don't they? They love operating outside of the parameters of limitations and boundaries and predictability and all that. I totally get that, right? For us grown folk in Christ, that's on the other side of glory. Every now and then we get little glimpses of wonder when God shows up in his mercy to keep us anchored in this world and to remind us there's more to our world than what we see. And how beautiful it is if in the fog of war, he gives us a glimpse of wonder. All right. So again, I'm getting I'm, I'm actually jumping ahead to give you some clues about what you're looking at when the enemy is pouring water and when your helper is pouring in the oil of grace. Those metaphors could be helpful if we fleshed out the question, what is the content of the water? What does that water represent when the enemy pours it on the fire of faith of the believer? What are those pragmatic? What are those practical? What are those concrete things that he does. Does that make sense? And the same thing we could ask, we could be speculating, but we could ask, what are those things that God does, what Christ does as our mediator, pouring in the oil of grace to sustain our faith? What does he use to strengthen our faith so that it actually works to stay lit in the midst of the water, which is an oxymoron, Right. Because water is going to put fire out unless there's a greater source of fuel burning that fire, even in the midst of the water. Right. And uh, this is the beauty of the metaphor of the oil, by the way, because oil can stay lit on water. Right. So then we would be talking only in this this narrow parabolic context. I told you that what we're doing is reversing. uh, John Bunyan is reversing metaphors. Now he's seen how water is used by the enemy for a bad thing before water was used by God for a good thing. Water uses is used to cleanse when God's in it. Water is used to drown and destroy when the devil's using it. Right. So the devil will take some of the same kind of attributions that God uses in an in a, uh, instrumental way to do harm. We get that right. The enemy loves taking good things and using them for bad purposes. You can even do that with scripture. And so we want to be able to talk that through. Three things here. I'm going to make some observations and then we're going to do some Q&A. Faith is wonderfully maintained by Christ because faith is the what? It is the, it is the credible token. It is the credible evidence of things hoped for. So stay right there. Because your faith is not appropriately applied unless it's designed to sustain a hope. Your faith is not appropriately applied unless it's designed to sustain a hope. And a hope is always a promise that has not yet been realized. Your faith is not appropriately appropriated properly unless it's attached to a promise which has not yet been realized. That's what he's saying. In the life of all the saints is God puts out in front of them promises of which they are pursuing. Well, how do they pursue those promises unless they're walking by what? Because the promises once received no longer needs to be pursued. And therefore, while it's out in front of you as a reality to emerge up out of the promise that God declares, it's called hope. Right. 
Right. So did did Mishael, Hananiah and Azariah have hope? And their hope. This is this is Daniel's three friends. Their hope was in a God who was sovereign. And they knew he could change the situation at any second. So that the decree for them to be thrown into the burning furnace could be mitigated. Or, as they said, if God wants us to give him glory in the fire, we're going in the fire. Boy, if that's not hope, I don't know what is. And then when they were thrown into it, hope showed up as a shield of faith in the person of Jesus to cover them in the fire. Which, again, is really the wall of faith exemplified for us now. Because they had no other option but to believe God for the outcome. And God said to them, as he says to to us, if you walk through the water, I'll be with you. When you go through the fire, it shall not scorch you. I mean, that metaphor and that promise is profound, is it not? And yet saints from the beginning of time throughout the whole church history up to this now have been up to now have been killed and burned in fires. Even today, Christians are being killed all over the world. And yet that promise remains true. Does that promise remain true? So I got about uh, three or four, four minutes. Think about that one, that example. Think about that example of uh, the Hebrew boys being cast into the fire and God keeping them. And what God is doing in the life of a believer when they are met with physical conflagration in a demonic state or a demonic nation that hates Christians. What can you and I believe God will do for them when they have to enter into that kind of torment? What are the what are the myriad of possibilities of the work of our grand mediator at the level of his divine power. I'm trying to draw some of y'all out to get what I'm saying. What can God do if he wanted to turn you into a torch as he did Polycarp and many of the first century saints to let the world know that the fire that burns them outwardly actually is not greater than the fire that's burning inside of them for which they praise God and give him glory while they're being set on fire. This is why I told the saints here at Grace when we first started going through this stupid thing called the pandemic to read the Fox's Book of Martyrs. I told them, read the Fox's Book of Martyrs. You don't don't get faith until you read church history and see how God kept the saints when they were going through this kind of tribulation. You guys understand what I just said? Because what happens when you read those events of what they went through, they begin to tell you about all kind of miracles that occurred, all kind of supernatural things that God does in the midst of their struggles before they die to either stop them from dying or there were there were, again. Polycarp is one of our dear brothers who was set on fire and they couldn't put enough fire on him for him to burn up. They're going, what are we doing? This man will not consume. And he's praising God in the midst of the fire. Can God do that? God made the fire. Am I making some sense? Right. And you and I don't get to verify that because we're not in such a trial. But 
Polycarp is not the only one testifying to those kinds of things. John the, John the apostle, the one who wrote the apocalypse, was thrown in a big vat of boiling oil to kill him. And it didn't kill him. And when they drug him out, he wrote the last book of the Bible. He didn't lose his mind. He was tempted and he even said it. I, John, am a fellow servant in the tribulation and kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how he opens up the apocalypse. You don't say, John, a fellow servant in the tribulation? Of course he was. So now, like the way I'm talking to you guys again about the wall of faith at the level of using examples of like persecution and tribulation is in order for you and I to take the wall of faith serious. Because remember what I told you, I told you that down the line, you're going to discover that Christian is asked, what did you learn in the interpreter's house? He says, I learned three things that God must keep me. That's a great lesson to learn. And he learned that from this account. God must be the one that keeps it. It makes all the sense in the world to me, doesn't it? I mean, so what you see in this account is the, the, the believer is not at the center of this event. His or her faith is. We're, do you know what would happen if you and I uh, had the visual of a person there? A person leaning up against the wall, you know, part of the wall. I don't know how we're going to do that. And fire emerging out in front of him and the fire going up and down as a consequence of the devil pouring water on him. And the devil's doing it in front of him. And Jesus is behind the wall because the wall is the mystery of his presence and your inability to know it. And Jesus is fueling the fire. And all you know is as much as hell you're going through, you're still believing God. Right. You don't know how. It's just happening. Um, But then you and I, if we saw a person there, we would be trying to find out who that is. Who is that person? It does not matter. It's not about the person. It's about the gift of faith. Am I making sense? Right. And so to secure you in the doctrine of faith so that you can know two things about faith, the faith of God's elect. One is a gift. It's a gift. You should know that. You should know that. And you should know about several Bible verses. Because a lot of people totally misinterpret faith. They make faith to be something that generates from their own Adamic nature. And that's not possible. Okay, the gift of God's elect, which is called faith, is a gift from God. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, 1. Philippians 1, 20, uh, 9 also says it. It is given on the behalf of Christ for you and I to believe. That gift of faith that's given to you has to be given to you because without it, you wouldn't believe God. Do you understand that? It's a gift from God. That gift of faith also came as a consequence of Christ's death. This is 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. That gift of God is given to us because of Christ's death in order for us to believe God. That's first Peter chapter one as well. Okay, that's going to be around uh, second Peter chapter one. That's going to be around verse uh, 11, 12 or 13. Okay, Uh, we are given the gift of faith in order to believe on the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That makes sense. 
That makes sense. Here's the other thing you need to know about the gift of faith. When once you have the gift of faith, 1 John chapter 5, verse 4, you can never not have the gift of faith. Like faith is not taken away from God's elect because it was never given to them on the grounds of what they do. Did that make some sense? Right. Your job is to go learn that. Go learn faith is a gift and is never taken away. It may diminish. It may diminish. It may go through variables of ups and downs. It is organic in nature, but because it's rooted in God through Christ, it cannot die. Right, Pastor, what are you talking about? No more than your soul can die or perish or destroy. Whenever you are brought into existence, you are permanently in existence. Whether heaven or hell, it's eternity from here on out. And it's the same thing with the gift of faith. Did you guys get that? The gift of faith is an eternal gift. It never gets revoked. It never gets taken away. It never gets lost permanently. It's the thing that's designed to keep you unto glory. This is why when we are talking about the perseverance of the saints or the preservation of the saints, the collaborative work between you and God is that God preserves your faith so that you can by faith persevere. These all died in faith. That's Hebrews 11. For those of you who need to be doing your recap on faith, these all died in faith. They started in faith. They lived by faith. They what? They died in faith. Right. That's that's how God's people work. Now, do you want to talk about what their faith looked like? We can do that. And you're going to have to understand the mystery of iniquity and godliness. Right. And if you don't, that's your that's your fault. But Jesus, uh, he gave us the gift of faith for us to negotiate the relationship between grace now and glory later. Because grace now is the simultaneity of living both as a righteous servant of God and a sinful person. Does that make some sense? You and I are in the tension between being righteous and what? Sinful. Right. And therefore, faith is needed to keep you to overcome your sinfulness. Faith is needed for you and I to overcome. And then, okay, see, I'm almost compelled to want to expand on sinfulness. Because there's so many concepts. This is why I told you the gospel is a mystery. Didn't I tell you that? Sin is a mystery. Sin is a mystery. I mean, we can define it technically, but, you know, how is it that two people who were sinless, who were who was in the most auspicious situation they could possibly be with God in the garden. End up sinning. They weren't like you and me, you and I were born sinners. Isaiah 48, we're going to learn that again this Sunday. You, God was never surprised when Jesse was born. I came out clowning. But he knew it. He, he told me, son, you are transgressive from the womb. Um, that wouldn't be surprising with me, but Adam was made sinless. Every synapse, every, every corpuscle, every every strand of his neurological makeup, every part of his spirituality and his physiology was completely healthy. Am I making some sense? And then this brother just sold the whole universe out to kick it with his chick. Did y'all get that? That's called the mystery of iniquity. The good that I would, I do not. The evil that I would not do, I find myself doing. Whoa. And, and I'm, I'm always amazed when Christians act like they don't do that from time to time. 
I'm like, what world are you living in? How much, how frequently are you lying to yourself about the struggle of the simultaneity of being righteous and sinful? Did y'all hear what I just stated? Or or you don't have a relationship with humility because if you have a relationship with humility, you're going to be honest. My thoughts are not perfect. Nothing about me is perfect. The only thing about me that's perfect is my substitute. Right. So my ways are not consistent. My rationale is not always holy. My motives are not always pure. Am I making some sense? Right. But I'm still rejoicing. Now, that's crazy. I still hope in God. I still love him. I still serve him. That's really a a mystery, isn't it? And I I love listening to him. I, I love studying his word. I love seeing him show up in people's lives. That's crazy. I love the God that I'm constantly flailing in my obedience for. That's paradoxical, isn't it? But it's true. John said, as he was dealing with the docetists and the Gnostics in 1 John chapter 1, if any man say that he does not sin, he's a liar and the truth is not in him. Got it? You can go around lying and talking about you don't sin if you want to. But Christ came for sinners. And it's sinners that are walking by faith, desperately wanting to be perfected. Right. And so this wall of of faith is a wall that's saying there are going to be times when the only thing you have is that gift. Right. Did that make some sense? That's the only thing you're going to have is that gift. You won't be able to boast in anything else. You won't be able to boast in anything else. When the smoke clears and see smart believers I don't know if I want to call us smart, but when you're around long enough and no warfare, because I know warfare, all I'm doing is waiting for the smoke to clear and for the believer to rise up out of that rubble like Jason and the Argonauts. Do you guys remember Jason? And, I'm, I'm, I'm dating myself. Them skeletons you try to kill and every time you knock them down, they rose back up. Well, those are believers. I'm sorry. That's a type of the believer. You knock them down, but they don't stay down. And they have one day that that flesh will once again be renewed and glorified and wrapped around the frame of their bones because they're walking with a mystery called Christ in you, the hope of glory. Okay, so that's that's what we're dealing with under subpoints A, B, and C, because faith is a is a substance of things hoped for, because hope is the gift of what? In our what? Right. And so the thing we want to be able to, and I'm, so I'm quoting Bible verses, you should know them, Romans 8, 28. This is a common one, right? Everything's working together for good to them that love God, right? To them that are the called according to his purpose, right? Everything's working together for that. So if I can believe that when things are absolutely undetectably crazy, undetectably crazy, if something deep down inside of me has a principle of hope in this, this chaos is controlled by God. Right? Do I'm getting that? And see, and, and so what's operating now is not a mere intellectual framing. I said it with words. I said it with words because I'm in a teaching mode. This has to be a deep, intuitive, implicit knowing. So when we're talking about a deep, intuitive, implicit knowing, this is the inarticulate hope 
of the believer. It's inarticulate. Raise your hand if you didn't understand what I just said there. Right, and so I'm glad you guys are learning here because, you know, it bothers me that Christians don't want to be sound in the faith and don't want to actually have to work through difficult terms, and they're not that difficult. Inarticulate is what a baby is when it completely rests in his mama and his daddy. Y'all know what I'm talking about? That's what, and if I wasn't so old, I'd jump off of here right now. And I could, I would be fine. But you know, when you're, when your dad, you know, your wife gets mad at you about this, your baby's up there, come on, jump, daddy got you. Jump! And they what? They jump. Because they implicitly trust daddy's going to keep them. They're not there calculating distance, height, weight. They're not calculating whether or not daddy might have a stroke in between my jump. They're not doing any of that. Implicit faith says daddy said it. I trust daddy. Off I jump. And I enjoy the ride. Right? I enjoy the ride. This is why he said, except you become like a little child, because the little child doesn't have to bring an academic, a propositional, an intellectual, a rational answer to all that it expects. It doesn't have to do it. See what I'm getting at? So that's the area in which we all have to balance between um, uh, intellectual maturity, because he calls us to that. And implicit humility at the level of being a child. That's a, that's a tension you want to walk in. You don't want, there are some things he's going to demand. You better think this through, knucklehead. Did you hear what I just stated? No, I'm not going to let you be a baby now. You don't get to cry. Now you got to think it through. I'm going to put you in jail. Now that's a metaphor. That's just called time out. And I'm going to let you work your way through what you did so you can figure out. And then you're going to get to call your lawyer, your advocate, and and tell your advocate the truth. Because your advocate is there to plead to the judge in your behalf. Am I making some sense? Or am I the only one that's been to jail? Right. So watch this now. You you tell your advocate everything because he needs all the data. Don't stop lying to your advocate because you're going to embarrass him if he gets up in front of the judge and the judge has more data data than your than your um, than your your advocate. And Jesus is our advocate. And actually, he's on the side of the judge. The judge wants you to always win that case. I mean, how how cool is it for the judge to appoint your advocate? His job is to get you to be honest. Stop lying. You win when you stop lying. Tell your advocate everything. He already knows. <laughs> he already knows. So the advocate says, now what happened? How, how did that work? How did you think that through? So what was your, what was your part in that, Jesse? How, how much of this did you contribute to? 30, 40, 50 percent? How much? He's waiting for me to lie because when I lie, he's going to walk out, leave me locked up. He's going to leave me locked up. You're going to leave me locked up and I'm going to have to sit there until I just, until, I, until humility shows up. Right? Against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. Right? This is Job's expression in Job chapter 38. God works once, God works twice to bring men to correction. 
in his sleep, deep in his thoughts. He opens his heart. He opens his mind and begins to seal instructions in him so that that man becomes aware that God will chase him down in his dreams. And he wakes up the next day, as Job says, and God says, if I can find anyone that will say I have sinned and I did that which did not profit me, then God will send a ransom to him. An advocate, a daysman that will stand between him and God and plead for him. And that man will find that that advocate will prevail with God. And that man will discover a newness in his life. He'll become like a brand new baby all over again. Heart changed, mind changed, soul renewed. And he'll find himself out of prison. And he'll know that the Lord did it. That's called regeneration. That's called being born again. And this is why sometimes, even if you're a child of God for many, many years and you just get stupid for a long period of time, sometimes he has to bring you to that level of acute repentance. And it feels like being born again all over again. Did that make some sense? Because what we often will do is just cumulatively create so many barriers and so many walls and so many false modes of relating to God that he has to just come through with a wrecking ball and knock it all down, make you look like you as lost as anybody else. And sometimes you're going to look worse than the unbeliever because God's not going to have his glory stolen. Does that make sense? So this wall of faith is very important. The hope is the crown of humble victory through Christ. Y'all got that? The hope is the what? Of what? See, y'all don't believe that. You just don't believe it. And so, you know, I, may, I, write these, I write these, what I think are very appropriate sort of explanatory statements attached to, I believe, a Bible verse that completely appropriates that proposition. And y'all don't even look up the Bible verse. Look at it. Look at 1 Peter chapter 113. Listen to it. Wherefore, do what? So, so that's an imperative. That's on you. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your what? Strengthen your thinking. Strengthen your thinking. Watch this. Be sober. That is to be sound and grave. Right choice making. And do what? Hope to the end. There it is. That's that's called faith persevering until you realize the promise. Hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus. Is that amazing as a promise? Hope to the end at the grace. So you're 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 moving by hope towards something that is moving towards you. You're moving towards it. It's moving towards you. You're going to get that hope. God says, go get him. And you meet in the center of the revelation of Jesus Christ. Right now, generally Paul views this as eschatological. And what that means is you guys know that when Jesus comes again, we're going to be with him. That is the ultimate eschaton, the ultimate revelation. Is that true? Right. The hour is coming. I love preaching it when we lay our people in the ground. The hour is coming. When all that are in the graves shall hear the voice of the son of God and they that have done good shall rise through the resurrection of just and those that have done evil shall rise through the resurrection of damnation. Beautiful passage. It means we all go meet God. 
That's why Hosea put it like this. Acquaint your, this is Amos, acquaint yourself with God and be at peace. Prepare to meet him, right? So, because he's coming and we're going to him. Everything that God made is coming back to God. So if you look at that verse again, I will argue that that verse by application means that every trial that you and I get into, where this wall of faith is requiring that you trust God, he's calling you and I to hope to the end of that trial, the end of that struggle, the end of that event. Am I making some sense? How do you know? I know that what I'm saying is right. James said it in James chapter five, and we have seen the end of Job. Isn't that the way he put it? We've seen, we've seen the telos of Job. We've seen the consummation of Job. We've seen how Job was one thing at the beginning and he was something else in the middle and he was yet something else at the end because at the end of his hope, he had everything restored. That's because God can't lie, fail, or change. And that's because without faith, it's impossible to what? And that is because he that believes, he that cometh to God must believe that he is and is a what? And Job did. Did Job believe him? Job is crazy because a lot of times he's saying, God, if you, I guarantee you, if you let me get before your throne, I'm going to tell you everything that's on my mind. Where you at? And then he said, you know what? No, what? No, no, that, that was bad. <laughs> that was all bad. I'm sorry, God. That was all bad. Uh, I do know this. When he is done trying me, I shall come forth as gold. Right. That's what he would say. He says, Lord, I'm, I'm as wicked as can be. You're like a giant chasing a flea. But this I know my redeemer liveth and he shall stand on this earth at the last day. And with my own eyes will I see him in my flesh. I will behold God. So what is Job doing as he's going through the water being poured on him? The, the Lord Jesus is pouring the oil of grace on his faith allowing him never to ultimately give in in the midst of these trials that are going for 40 chapters. Am I making sense? Right. So for us, all we're wanting to do when we see our brothers and sisters go through it is to see our brothers and sisters get through it. Did that make some sense? All right. Just a few questions and then we're going to get out of here. When you see your brothers and your sisters going through it, the only thing you want to do is to see them what? Get through it. And just for time, you can just start talking, Cindy. Okay. So you said, when you cannot see the fog, you must know. I don't think I said that, so you're reconstructing it. Okay. I wrote it down, and I was wondering, um, I think you said you must know. So, so when you can't see the promises... Because the fog is going to blind you from it. You, obviously, you're seeing the fog. Mm-hmm. So when you can't see through the fog, you must know. That's and, I think what you said. When you, you can't are. see through the fog, right. you must know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, it, so that's going to be, isn't it, saints? Isn't it going to be this? Isn't it going to be um, retreating from all external reaches? trying to get a handle, retreating to a place of intuitive trusting. Yeah. Isn't that what it's going to be? Did y'all get what I just said? We, we're going to try to reach in the fall. 
but we, we may not find anything that will constitute any capacity to navigate it. At that point, we retreat into that implicit trust because that implicit trust, though it is inarticulate, even to us, even to us, because you know a trial can just jack you up and you can forget every Bible verse in the scripture. So we're like, so some of them like looking at me, some, some of the saints looking at me like, pastor, you crazy. I ain't never went through a trial like that. It's going to happen to them next week. They'll come back and they'll come back and tell me. (laughs) So when you're in the fog, you're going to recognize you're in the fog. You have to try to recognize you. That's the thing you want to do, because once you're in the fog, if the, if the instructions I'm sharing with you are making sense, And you probably have to go through this a couple of times because I want to do better in the fog. That's right. So the fog can also be an opportunity to say, oh, so I'm in the fog because I'm being um, there's an invitation to be back to grow it to grow too. in that. That's a That's a good way. Remember, we're rationalizing, right? Right. We are rationalizing. We are not, we're not non, we're not non-intellectual creatures. She's doing the right thing. Is she not? Because growth is what God is doing in our life. Is he not? So she's rationalizing. Is she not rationalizing? I I do want to, in real time, modify what she says to show you the different levels of the intensity and density of the fog. You don't mind? Do you mind that? So when a believer is able to rationalize appropriately, you know, biblical premises. First Peter chapter five, verse 10, pull it up. Then what's happening, she's going to already put it on the screen. Then what's happening is the fog hasn't taken over so bad that you can't calculate. See what I'm getting at? All right. So it's important. So you can keep going. You done? Yeah. So, so because we're learning about the fog, right? And we're learning about the faith mm-hmm. and how beautiful too that when we recognize the fog and we pray and we, we just kind of like trust it, trust, you know, because God, we know Jesus isn't pouring the water. Like he's, he's there. Mm-hmm. He's there with us in the fog. So I guess we can just hold on to that too and kind of, Wait it out. So to your point in your last sentence, so that we can be the people that when people are watching to say, oh, good, my sister made it out of the fog. That's right. That's right. right. That's very right. That's very right. I want to expand on that, even though I could. Thank you for that. Who, who else has the mic? Let's keep talking. Don't lose opportunity. Go on, sis. <clears throat> you blow on it. Don't beat on it. Love the mic. Love the mic. Hello. Okay, so... I see the wall of faith as the seed being planted in good soil and the devil couldn't take it away. Yeah. That's kind of how I see it. Yeah. Okay. Right. So it's, not, it's not at all what we're talking about. So what you're talking about is what is called perseverance of the saints. Right. Well, when the wall, when the devil is throwing water on the on fire, the water to on put fi- it out. On the fire. The fire. From the from my heart, when you, he's throwing water on the fire, the fire is the faith of the believer. Right. Okay. And 
then behind the wall, God is putting the oil. Christ. Christ is putting it. What else they got? Because, <laughs> no, it's not. And the only thing I want to do here is make sure we understand the role of your master is mediation. He's your intercessor. Jesus is the mediatorial essence of God. Okay, God's running things. Jesus, and this is also to be designed for you to maintain rational intimacy with Jesus. He's obligated to keep you. Jesus is obligated to keep you. He paid for you. He's obligated to keep you. And he's not obligated to you. He's obligated to himself and to his father, right? So that's what he said. Father, while I was with them in the world, I kept them. I'm going now, send the comforter in my name. That means Jesus is present in the comforter and he will keep them, right? So that's the comfort of this metaphor is the nearness of Christ in our trials at the level of the fog. I've shared this before and it's important to get. Sometimes we will think, that Jesus is nearest to us when we are in worship on Sunday and pastor just, you know, knocked it out of the park and the soul is just elating and Jesus is super near, right? We just about to go Pentecostal. No, he's, he's more near to you. He's near there, but he's more near to you in your troubles and, 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 and near enough for you to not doubt it. So the oil gets poured so that the faith doesn't turn into doubt. Even though you don't see how it is, the language that Pilgrim puts, which is really fascinating is, you can't actually reason why it is that you didn't stop believing him, if that makes sense. So now the way you framed it, the parable of the sword and the seed, is, which is a different analogy, is simply saying that the seed qualitatively is the seed that God plants in us, a faith that cannot perish. Does that make sense? Right, but that's going to be from a different standpoint of the lesson of the analogy. At that point, that's simply dealing with the character of our salvation under the principle of faith. When I'm talking about the wall, I'm talking about our experience of not being able to grasp wholly what's going on. That's why Job is important. That's why Peter is important. Because if you read Matthew chapter 26, when Peter crashes, when he denies the Lord, just like the Lord said three times. And then the little girl having actually said, Peter, you're the one. And he swears with oaths and cursings. And as soon as he hears the roosters, he goes out and weeps bitterly. Y'all with me? Stay right here. Because that optic is remarkable because Peter told was told it was going to happen. And he didn't make provisions to make sure that it didn't. And Jesus knew he wasn't going to make provision because Peter was not willing in the moment in which Jesus said, the enemy is going to sift you like wheat. Peter didn't walk in humility and say, Lord, have mercy on me. I don't want that. I mean, that's us sometimes. And so the, the lesson of the wall is there will be scenarios where you won't be able to explain what's going on. You won't be able to see what's going on. The implicit faith will simply let you know that you haven't been completely abandoned. And even there, even there, I have to say, because you should know scripture and I know you do. David will be crying out as if he was abandoned. 
I mean, I could just give you an example. So I, I, I'll give a few because so I want I appreciate the way you're framing it in terms of what we call the perseverance of the saints. And it is qualitatively the seed of faith. So it's called the incorruptible seed in first Peter chapter one. The word of God, which is how faith is given, is shrouded in, in, in the faith is shrouded in the word of God. Right. So that good seed is sown in the ground. It's an incorruptible seed. It can never perish. He sowed it into us. He sowed it into us because if we could make it perish, we would. But it never perishes, not only because of its qualitative nature, but because of its maintenance by our mediator, the Lord Jesus, pouring in the oil of grace. So I'm getting complicated with it because you have to. That seed is not one singular, what we would call monoconceptual thing. The seed of faith is a collaboration between the triune God and his people at the level of sustaining their believing. Does that make some sense? So God's on his throne running the show. Jesus is mediating. The Holy Ghost is doing his stuff. And we could talk about different mechanisms on a tangible, practical level of what, again, that oil looked like. But notice the key to that event, just in case you, you guys, it was eluded to you. It, it eluded you. This is an ongoing event. That oil is constantly being poured on. Like this is an ongoing event. The enemy is constantly trying to work with you in destroying your faith. Jesus is constantly sustaining your faith. This is why I say every day I wake up, I say, Lord, I thank you. I'm still believing you today. It's a miracle. Does that help, sis? Very good. Thank you. Very good. Who, who has the mic? I see the mic flow. Miss, Miss Alice. When we were in Daughters of Grace, um, there was an acronym for the fog. Mm -hmm. And it was faith outside of God. Mm -hmm. My question is, this fog that we're talking about tonight. So I don't know if it was faith outside of God. So I, I'm, I'm glad you're being valiant enough to look, look for it, but it's not going to be faith outside of God. That would be an oxymoron because faith has its coextensive existence in God. So what you probably want to do is look that up. And you, gotta, you have 100 sisters plus who are in that class. Look it up and then let's bring it back okay. because I want to get that acronym right. Okay. Okay. So I don't want you, be, I want you to go around saying that the wall of faith is faith outside of God. No, I was just going to ask you if, if it was different. Yeah, it is different. Okay. And I don't even know what it is, but I know it's different than that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I know that much. Um, I'll look it up too, because I did remember that acronym when we were dealing with that and we were dealing with the fog. Um, and uh, I'll, I'll find it and text it to you. Thank you for thinking about it. Um, it's, a, it's a great acronym. Once we get it, we'll go, aha. That's what we were talking about. Um, who, who else? Who else? Uh, ladies first. Oh, we're done with our ladies. Okay. If we're done with our ladies, I'll go to, I'll go to my, my gentleman. Go ahead on, Phil. Um, I just have an observation and I just want to, um, um, give God the glory, give God the praise. I just feel like, um, I feel like everything that you were speaking on tonight, pastor was specifically for me. I felt that you were telling my story, um, lately, um, trying not to be too winded or too tongue-tied, but um, I can relate to everything he was talking about, the fog. God saved me when I was 11, and 
I've been walking with the Lord a long time, and he gave me a, a very deep hunger and thirst for righteousness and for, for his word at a young age, but I also, I'm about that life at the same time, and I struggled with that for the majority of my life. And um, when, I, when I came to Grace, I had given up on you know Orthodox American Christianity because of Romans 9 basically, in the whole book of Romans. And when I looked at the church and I looked at, you know, outside, I didn't know about expository teaching. You know, I was searching for it, I was looking for it. So when I first heard you on the radio in 2013 or 14, I wouldn't even come because I was like, man, I can't believe it. I was looking for flaws in your doctrine and couldn't find it. And I was like, you know, I happened to bump into somebody and they said, I said, I've been listening to this guy for like six months. And, they, and that's how I got here. And then once I got here, I took it for granted. You know, I wasn't serious about, you know, I amened everything. I shook my head. I'm, I've always been high-strung, hyper-vocal, and, and all of that kind of stuff. And, um, you know, when, when God takes, takes it away from me, when I, I just got back into town two days ago from another state, and I've been watching YouTube videos every week. So shout out to the, to the media ministry and everybody's here and all the Q&A questions. I mean, that's all I had. That's all I had. It is dry out there. I was walking into churches and walking straight out after five or ten minutes. Yep. The gospel is just not there. That's true. And, and um, we are extremely blessed. Amen. Uh, Pastor, I love you so much, your family. Amen. Uh, I got this whole church in prayer. I mean, you've been in prayer yeah. by me because oh, yeah, you need well, to know it. Well, you go way back, Phil. You know, yeah, prayer, prayer. Our prayer group, you, you, you were part of that early on. Amen. So I, I just want to encourage. And, and you can check in from time to time, email. That way the people can keep you on their lips because part of the fallacy is isolation. You know that. So, and, and, and saints are human. How many guys remember Phil? Raise your hand. Not one person. Anybody, the rest of you gentlemen don't even remember Phil. If you came on Sunday, they, you know it would be a whole bunch of people that remembered you, right? But because... We'll be missing no more. Yeah. yeah. I, well, I'm just saying that even when we are... Technology allows us to have a substantial, not um, as adequate as being in person. And people are, gonna, people are going to... The, the saints that don't honor fellowship are in trouble. I'm just letting you know that. I'm a witness. Right. Yeah, big, big, big. I mean, I've been there from the, I mean, I know it's recorded, so some people might not even know. I've been to the suicide, homicide. Yep. I was in all of that. Yeah. And God brought me through the other side. Yeah. There's people I've, since I've been back, that I went to check on, they ain't here no They're more. not here anymore. They, I mean, literally. Right. No, we, not, we know I that. I have been gone that long. That's right. Only okay. a couple years. So, yeah. Um, I thank God that he kept me. And then the beauty of it is I'm so locked in now. I'm so much stronger. And I had a lot of word in me. So it's very easy for me to keep up with pastor. Extremely easy. Sometimes I feel like, you know, I have to make myself listen. Because um, I don't want to become dull of hearing. But um, I really enjoy the questions. I really enjoy seeing you guys' faces, you know, and sitting up and praying. So... That's my corner, <laughs> and uh, I know Pastor talks about not moving that corner, but that's my corner. Yeah, and uh, the saints are predictable. I'll be over there crying because I'm yeah. just so glad 
That's why I sit like this, and now this is the most comfortable place I can be. And um, I just love everybody here, truly. I can say that sincerely, not of course. just. Of no course. Panel. If you love the Lord, That's right. uh, I'm with you. Amen. I'm on your side. I got your back. All right. Amen. There, there you go. You, uh, I appreciate Phil's testimony. What? Right. Outside of God's will and word. So, right, when, when, when you can't recognize his will and you can't recognize his word, that's how bad the fall gets. But we talked about that. That's what I just uttered. So the purpose for learning scripture is so that it can be hid in your heart at the deepest levels. Right? Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not walk away from you. That's what that means. So sin carries a broad application, okay? Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not walk away from you. Okay, that's what that means ultimately, okay? Because we got a lot of word hidden in our heart, we still sin. Um, That's what our brother's testifying to. He's just letting you know. If you can mess up if you want to, and you can find yourself drifting out there like Jonah, okay? And got a lot of Jonas out there, right? And it it is what it is. Um, And in some cases, as Phil will testify, if he needs to, God will put you out there because that's the only way he can deal with you. Because we won't get it right in the community uh, of what we call the Commonwealth. People don't treat the Commonwealth like they should. That's what I meant by the takeaway. Like a lot of Christians will, if you'll meet Christians over the tenure of your walk, and you can ask them, you know, how long you been in the Lord? They'll tell you, I've been in the Lord 935 years. <laughs> and 932 of them, they've been outside of his will. And so, and, and the point is, is that, that that's why the parable, parables are so stinging because they warn us about those kinds of behavior patterns. This is part of the mystery of iniquity that my brother's working through, but he's not by himself. We've got people in-house that are just as outside in-house than he is out there. Because out there now he knows he needs God. And he's piping in in ways in which that, that desire and aspiration to make sure that he has some light in the midst of that darkness that he's out there with, that's what he's doing. And that's, that's kind of what I'm talking about. That's kind of what I'm talking about. Um, and so, you know, Providence has got him back in the Bay Area for a minute and he stepped in and noticed what he did. He spoke up because he doesn't know the next time he's going to be here um, and pray for him because um, he 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 needs to be feel as well as you and me need to be in a better way with the Lord. Um, and that's true. But God knows how to keep us even at the different levels of difficulties in our walk. Um, who has the mic? I'm going to shut it down. Is that it? Oh, good. Excellent. Let me make a couple observations. We're done with this one. We'll pick up on a beautiful account of glory described in certain ways by uh, Bunyan, which is great after a lesson like this. Um, I think about the fog under multiple categories, and you'll meet people who are dealing with the fog of hopelessness, the fog of hopelessness. So keep these in mind because you want to be able to identify what are the characteristics of that fog. Right. There is the fog of despair. The fog of despair. When I when I use the example of the fog of hopelessness. I'm talking about Hagar, Sarah's handmaid. 
Hagar was used by Sarah to have um, Ishmael. And Ishmael was a joy to Abraham for 13 years. And then God actually fulfilled his promise to Sarah. And uh, Ishmael and his mother Hagar had to go. Now, people don't like to make a whole lot about Hagar, but you're not going to get any real um, slanderous or critical negativity about Hagar when you read the scriptures. Because providence put her in the family of faith. Providence allowed her to become the wife of Abraham. She was not just his concubine, she was his wife. Providence allowed her to obey her mistress, Sarah, and providence allowed her to have the Ishmaelites for Abraham. Abraham's the father of them all. And in that providence, God promised Hagar that her son wouldn't be a bastard child, that he would be a great nation. But because Ishmael started clowning when Isaac got here and mocking him, Sarah says, all right, the contract is up. You got to go. And, and Abraham said, yep, you can't have two queens in one house. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Ooh. All right, so that's a whole nother conversation. You can, it, it, I, two queens in one house never work. I don't care if it's mama and daughter. Please understand two queens in one house don't work. Uh, and so Hagar had to go. And you guys remember, Abraham rushed to do what God said because God said, listen to your wife's Hagar, uh, Sarah, because uh, Hagar and Ishmael were under a different covenant promise. And uh, she got a, a little bread and a flag and a water and her and that boy had to walk and they were in the wilderness. And she let him drink the last little bit of the water and put him under a bush because of the heat. And she sat right next to him, ready to die. That was a fog of war. Yeah. Let me just take a minute to tell you. All her life, God had blessed her with normalcy. She had a roof over her head, food in her belly. She was the wife's, she was the mistress, the wife of the uh, mistress, Sarah. That means she lived very well. All the other women were servants. Abraham had hundreds of them. You guys know that. Sister Hagar was well off. Sister Hagar could have been a little girl when Abraham came out of Ur of the Chaldees. Because when he came out of Ur of the Chaldees, him and Sarah and Lot had a crew with them coming out. Their crew grew, didn't it grow? Their crew grew. God blessed Abraham significantly. He's got all kind of people. So Hagar probably has a biographical of a very reputable level in terms of being a very uh, stable, very accomplished, very disciplined. What we know is her life was well. Do not forget that, okay? You're, I know you're American and you don't understand these hierarchical structures, but please believe me, when you're next to the queen, you, you, you're, you're getting down. 
And because Providence did not have Hagar to be married to somebody else, Sarah trusted Hagar to have Abraham's baby because in that day we didn't know how it is that barrenness took place, whether on the man's part or on the woman's. Somehow Sarah knew it was her and not Abraham. So things kicked in. But when it was time to go, her world was turned upside down, wasn't it? Her world was turned upside down. Don't tell me she didn't enter into a fog of war. And it's just her and her baby. You guys remember that? That's Genesis 21. She goes, sits under a bush. And guess what God does? He calls out. Hagar! Hagar! That's because God was always with her. God did not tell you back then I got a purpose for your life. You and the child are going to be fine. Take a walk up the road a little bit. You're going to find water and palm trees and everything else. I'm guiding your life. But that was a fog of absolute despair. Y'all got that? And we have them. We're, see, she, you don't see her praying. You don't see her doing anything. She's ready to die. And she wants to die before her son. He's 13 years old. Remember what I said in the opening? I'd rather suffer than my kids. That's Hagar. Remember Hannah? That girl went through a fog of war because she was in a constant state of um, antagonism and, 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 uh, and provocation from Penina's wife. Do you guys remember that? She's crying and crying and crying and crying and crying and crying and crying. And she's not understanding why her lot is the way that it is. And then God comes through, right? There's so many accounts I'm thinking, Jonah was in the fog of war too. He didn't like his assignment and it led to him negative sequencing so bad that he wanted to commit suicide. You guys remember that, didn't we talk about? Throw me over. Don't tell me you're not in the fog. Think about that. Was that a fog? It had to be because God didn't say, Jonah, I need you to go die. He didn't say that. He said, Jonah, I need you to go preach to these other human beings that need grace just like you. So why is this so bad? Because the fog set in and his head got twisted because his heart was hardened against his enemies and he was no longer able to think God's thoughts after him. Am I making some sense? There's so many occasions where uh, this wall of fire is so important for us to remember for, for when you go through it, but mostly also, saints, when other people go through it. When other people go through it, when they're in that fog, if they can't identify it, help them to identify. What are the marks of being in the fog? It's when you are clueless. It's when you are lost to actually what's going on. It's when you are fatigued. It's when you are unable to hold on to certain principles and anchors of scriptural promises. Is when you are just misdirected. That makes sense, right? Right. Um, and remember that the fog might be a consequence of sin, but the fog is not sin itself. Don't blame people for being in the fog. Are you guys hearing me? Right, because Job, Job was in the fog 
He know what was going on. Hannah's in the fog. She don't know. Right. You can't blame her because she's in the fog. Remember, too, the fog is a place that God is going to put us sometimes until we get acquainted with our friend called humility. God always resists the proud. I'm scared of that thing called pride. Bothers me to no end. Right, bothers me. Like, I know I'm not going to be blessed if I keep hanging out with this fool. Right? All right, y'all pray pray with me. Father, thank you for your mercy and your goodness. Thank you for the saints. As we go our way, give us traveling mercies. Prepare us to worship you on Sunday. In Jesus' name, amen.